1: Are you challenging me to a Catholic throwdown? (laughs) Are you challenging me? First of all, let's get your bona fides out there. So this sister, Sharon, is now a Dominican nun. Oh! In full habit. Damn, hold on. (laughs) Thud.
0: This is Stephen Colbert and actress Patricia Heaton quizzing each other on their Catholic bona fides.
1: What, huh? How, as a Catholic, how do you sell your house faster? You bury St. Joseph, a statue of St. Joseph, upside down in your lawn. You do. And I'll tell you a story. True story. Uh My mom, my mom, the most Catholic person I ever knew, she wanted to sell her house. This was during the recession in the 90s. She couldn't sell her house. She couldn't move yes. the damn thing. And so she heard about this thing yes. from her Marian friends. Like, you know, uh, put Joe upside down. Yeah. And, and she goes, I wouldn't do that to St. Joseph. And so she got a St. Joseph statue, put it in the garden, and the house didn't sell. So the, house, the, the, the statue, uh, she eventually went back out there. She dug a hole put him upside yes. down. The house Found. sold. And, I, and she goes, I feel terrible. I said, Mom, clearly Joe only understands the rough stuff. <laughs>
0: Yeah, true story. A Catholic priest might warn that bearing a statue for good luck, though well-intentioned, is attributing magical power to a sacred thing, and that divine power doesn't come from an object. It only comes from God. This tension between folk superstitions and church doctrine goes back a long way, according to the Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor. Here he is speaking at Georgetown
2: University in 2008. In the religions that come from Abraham. There's there's been a tremendous uneasy relationship from the beginning between the highest notions of salvation on one hand and these various practices on the other. I mean, even the medieval church, they were you could you could cross the line to a point where it was out of the question, like using the host as a love potion. The church still disapproves of superstitious
0: practices, just like it did in medieval times. But something happened around the 16th century that broke the present era from everything before it. This is what Taylor is trying to understand. What happened starting around the 16th century that makes our present age feel so different from previous eras? How did we get modernity? According to Taylor, superstition is a key part of this break. Although it is still with us to some extent, superstition plays a much smaller part of people's lives than it once did. Taylor traces the historical roots of modernity to Christian reformers' efforts to crack down on folk magic.
2: Now, what happened in Latin Christendom from 1500 on is the, something like a, a religiously inspired, faith inspired disenchantment, that is, kind of polemical attack at a great number of these collective practices which were seen as idolatrous and not really fully Christian. Think of the Salem Witch Trials, for instance, where in a
0: single town, 200 people were accused of practicing magic, 19 of whom were found guilty and executed by hanging.
2: In extreme Protestant cultures, these people were driven to the wall because there isn't such a thing as good magic. Anybody engaging in any of this kind of stuff must be against God. And the paradox I want to put to you, the unintended consequence of all this, in a certain sense, is a secular world.
0: Welcome to Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we explore different ways of understanding modernity. The most common story of modernity is that science triumphed over myth, helping to create a neutral secular sphere. But some say that story is itself a myth that has done more harm than good. In his 2009 book, A Secular Age, Charles Taylor explains the paradox whereby Christian reformers brought about a secular world. By rooting out idolatrous folk magic, Christian reformers created a new worldview in which everyday objects were no longer believed to be invested with transcendent power. Instead, all material objects operated according to predictable laws of nature. As a result, Fewer people saw God or his angels and saints directly intervening in the world, and some stopped believing in them altogether. Following the German sociologist Max Weber, Taylor uses the word disenchantment to describe this shift to a naturalistic worldview. Taylor's story, that religious devotion unintentionally led to disenchantment, is at odds with another, more common story about modernity, that the growth of science directly caused disenchantment and unbelief. Religious claims seemed increasingly implausible because they lacked any kind of testable evidence. This story sees the decline of religion as a sign of rational progress and enlightenment. Here is the prominent public atheist, Sam Harris, giving that view on a Big Think video in 2011.
3: Religion was the discourse
0: uh, that we had when all causes in the universe were opaque. And gradually, uh, what what. You see, happening is that religion, as, as as rationality
3: and and dozens of specific sciences were birthed in the human conversation. You see, religion on a hundred fronts losing the argument. Religion, you
0: know, it used to be that you could get a diagnosis of demonic possession. I mean, you, that was a you know a reasonable thing to believe you had if you were having seizures, say, you know. But now we have a science of neurology, and we know about epilepsy, and so that's a good thing. I'm saying that religion is losing the argument on every other front. So Sam Harris believes disenchantment is an achievement of science, while Charles Taylor attributes it to Christianity. But there's actually something wrong with both of these claims. For all that Harris and Taylor disagree, there's one crucial thing that they have in common. Both see the disenchantment and secularization of the West as the advent of modernity. And therefore, both of their stories portray modernity as a European accomplishment. In other words, a white accomplishment. Though neither acknowledges it, race is a hidden part of both of their stories. When Harris does speak about race, he's usually insisting that it's high time we all stop talking so much about it. And Taylor just avoids the issue entirely. In 850 pages of what is supposed to be the definitive analysis of modernity, considering everything from Plato to Playboy... Taylor somehow never once discusses race. In both of their narratives, modernity begins in the Enlightenment, in the salons of France, the coffee houses of England, and the streets of Konigsberg. But another narrative begins a century earlier and an ocean away.
4: Latin American uh, thinkers have for a long time argued that we should talk about the beginning of modernity in 1492 rather than the Enlightenment.
0: This is Myra Rivera, a professor of religion and Latinx studies at Harvard. She argues that white intellectuals are too self-congratulatory when they describe modernity as a consequence of European Enlightenment because they ignore the material contribution that non-Europeans were forced to make. Instead, she says, we must recognize that when Europeans invaded other lands, they extracted the resources, including slaves, that funded their scientific and intellectual projects.
4: What that allows us to do is to see how the material resources are tied to knowledge. If we begin with the Enlightenment, we might think modernity is an accomplishment of rationality. Uh, But if we begin with the conquest, we see a much more ambiguous picture, right? Of what is that what is that power built upon and what's the cost in terms of in terms of life of the Enlightenment project. What really supports it is what was extracted from the Americas through conquest and slavery.
0: In this telling of modernity, the Western discovery of the New World in 1492 led to European conquest, which in turn made the European Enlightenment possible. But that version of events still sees the Enlightenment as the moment when the modern age was born. Modernity and the secular values it emphasizes might be funded by resources from the New World, but it still begins in Europe. Jared Hickman, a professor of English at Johns Hopkins University and author of the book Black Prometheus, shifts the focus away from Europe entirely.
3: The modern and the secular have often been sort of a a package deal. What that leads to is a certain form of profoundly Eurocentric narrative. Like Rivera, Hickman argues that we should identify
0: 1492 as the beginning of modernity, rather than the Enlightenment. But where Rivera sees the evolution of modernity as a two-step process, first colonialism, then intellectual change, Hickman defines modernity through one major shift. Modernity, he says, is defined by the persistent interaction of wildly different cultures as a result of European colonization. This wasn't an exclusively European phenomenon every culture that colonization touched had to incorporate other people, practices, and beliefs into its worldview. That's the new global reality that constitutes modernity, not secularization. The secularism that European cultures developed was merely one local response to that global sea change.
3: This sort of flurry of developments that happen um, all at once and and constitute, I think, a, a, a unique historical moment. The encounter with a radical heterogeneity, right? The discovery of, uh, from a European's perspective, right, Um, of entire continents of people who are not accounted for, have not been accounted for in um, existing um, cosmographies. That word, cosmography,
0: is key to understanding how 1492 not only altered the material conditions of the world, it also completely transformed the intellectual conditions of the world. The root of the word cosmography is cosmos, a term used since Pythagoras 2,500 years ago to talk about the whole of everything that exists as a unified order. Perhaps the word cosmos makes you think of the black void of space, sparsely populated by the occasional planet circling the nearest star. Or maybe, if you are religious, your cosmos also includes spiritual or divine beings that exist outside of the physical universe. In any case, the word cosmos refers to everything that exists. And the word cosmography refers to the narratives that you use to try to understand everything that exists. It's your map, not just of the physical world, but also the metaphysical world. And this map usually consists of some combination of mythology, philosophy, science, religion, history, folklore, literal maps, whatever you use to make sense of your world. For example, in 1492, Columbus's cosmography included the travelogue of the explorer Marco Polo, which was literally titled Description of the World. Polo described a race of dog-headed cannibals living somewhere on the other side of the globe, as we discussed in our episode on cannibalism. Beasts like humans were a common part of the European worldview at the time, and Columbus exploited that fact to dehumanize native peoples in order to bypass Spanish laws against slavery. As Europeans continued to interact with different cultures, however, their 2,000-year-old belief in dog-headed cannibals eventually fell apart under the weight of obvious evidence. This is the key point. As Europeans experienced more on-the-ground, real-life interactions with indigenous peoples, they were forced to realize that their ideas about the world, in other words, their cosmographies, needed revamping. Their working model of the world no longer fit the enormous amount of new data coming in. And Europeans weren't the only ones who found gaps in their worldviews. American Indians and Africans were also finding out about new continents and having to share space with alien peoples that their previous cosmographies had gotten all wrong or hadn't even accounted for. Let me illustrate this point another way. When I was in college, I was dating a girl who I was totally in love with. I was pretty sure I was going to marry her. We decided to take a trip across Europe together. When we went from seeing each other for just a few hours a night several times a week to 24 hours a day for weeks on end in budget airplanes and cramped hostels, we learned a lot of new information about each other. We realized pretty quickly that we weren't right for each other and we broke up as soon as the trip ended. Neither of us had changed, but our constant proximity forced us to learn a lot more about each other. One might reasonably object to the story we've been telling about colonial encounters and say that medieval civilizations had also been aware that there were people different from them in the world. However, the difference that 1492 made was that colonialism and the slave trade forced many more people of different cultures to live and work with each other in shared spaces. Those everyday interactions provided a lot more data to disrupt worldviews than trading and war previously had. Each group had to expand its understanding of the other's place in the world just to deal with the practicalities of
3: day-to-day interaction. It's that sort of, that connection of encountering places and peoples that are on some level sort of literally alien, right? Shortly thereafter, the gaining of a sense of the radical homogeneity of space within which one is embedded with these radically unforeseen cosmic others. That, I think, for me, is the most objectively solid sort of historical event that one could point to that would warrant where you could could reasonably say, like, no, something's changed.
0: Between 1492 and 1522, the world got both bigger and smaller. Columbus's 1492 voyage made the world feel bigger by revealing to everyone whole continents and peoples they hadn't previously known. But Magellan's 1522 voyage, the first to ever circumnavigate the Earth, made the world feel smaller by defining its actual limits. Before, the Earth was full of strange and unknown places. Its edges were hazy. Now, the maps had been more or less filled in, giving everyone the distinctly modern feeling that we're all stuck on this finite globe together. That's the global context that colored every local interaction in which different cultures with incompatible cosmographies met. Everyone had to contend with new peoples. Modernity is not enlightenment. It is inescapable pluralism. The resulting pressure that your beliefs and practices, no matter what they are, will inevitably come into conflict with someone else's radically different beliefs and practices, that pressure meant that Europeans had to do more than add a few continents and oceans to their maps. They needed a completely revamped mythology, one designed to survive and dominate in the new clash of cosmographies. The result was the invention of secularism. For many Europeans living on the frontier, One of the most unsettling experiences of this new cosmos was the indifference indigenous people displayed towards the Christian god. In 1585, English explorers in present-day North Carolina encountered Native Americans and attempted to convert them to Christianity. Initially, the Native people were quite impressed by the English explorer's technologies. Sea compasses, magnets, magnifying glasses, guns, clocks, and so on. And they even assumed that these things had been given to the English by their god. But despite their impressive technologies, Europeans found it harder than they had expected to convert native people. Here's Jared Hickman again.
3: They're talking about Christ. What they're getting back from um, the native people on the ground is like, oh, we're kind of interested in your God because, like, you guys have got some cool stuff. You've got guns. You've got these things we haven't seen before. So your your God must be powerful in some way, right? But they are identifying that God as the God of England, right? (laughs) So they're saying, you know, you're God, you have a God over in your place, that God has sort of traveled with you to to this place in some sense, you are the bearers of that God to this place. Yeah, I'm willing to sort of to think about how I might propitiate that God or how I might get in good with that God, if it means that I'm going to be able to It's going to benefit me in some uh, in some way. An encounter like that, and there, I mean, there are you know gazillions of these of these sorts of encounters is 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 really fascinating because it creates this uh, a a dynamic right where Euro Christians are being confronted right with the the partiality right um, the alleged locality right of what they take to be a universal truth right and um, and there's a whole set of of varying responses, right, that sort of, that, that, that follow from that.
0: Some Europeans responded by doubling down and insisting that Christ wasn't their God. He was just God. But for many others, that kind of question begging just wasn't going to cut it. They needed a response that was more immune to claims of cultural relativity than their parochial Christianity had proven to be. They needed a new cosmography that denied Native peoples even footing with Europeans. They needed a story that could explain and justify the dominance they were already enacting by stealing entire continents from indigenous peoples and forcing millions of Africans across the Atlantic into slavery. In other words, they needed a new cosmography by which they could put other races in their place, not just physically, but metaphysically. And that, Hickman says, is how secularization started. The idea of secularity is to engage in governance or academic study in a way that is supposedly neutral with respect to religion. But someone who makes a point of being free from the influence of religion is also asserting a distinct claim to power. The claim to objectivity implies that one's judgments are not tainted by the partiality of one's own cultural myths, but are based on rationality alone.
4: It points to the claim of being a kind of person that can survey the totality of the world and organize the totality of the world and even judge what people may need for their well-being. Um, So you can see the whole, but you're not limited by by your own particularity. Um, And there's ways in which that could be seen as taking the role that in certain traditions is given to God, one who sees the cosmos.
0: That's right. Europeans basically thought they were gods. Rivera is talking about an attitude held for centuries by white colonizers known as the white man's burden. Or, as she puts it,
4: This idea that colonialism is justified um, not as a right over other people, but as a duty to other people.
0: In this newly arranged cosmos, the enlightened white man believed he was the world's savior, a role which Christianity traditionally gave to Jesus. Secularism allowed white intellectuals to use the category of religion as a foil for their own self-identity as enlightened rationalists. They were essentially saying, look how superstitious those Africans and Indians are and how rational we are. Their view of the world is so limited by their local traditions but we are accessing universal truths through science. The Enlightenment notion of progress carries with it the implicit notion that Western civilization has progressed more than others, and that it is the West's job to bestow their enlightened knowledge upon other peoples through colonization. This attitude began in the 16th century, but it is alive and well today.
4: Right after um, 9-11, for instance, we saw... the the idea of a destruction of certain communities in order to free them.
0: Shortly after the 9-11 attacks, U.S. troops invaded Iraq. Here is President George W. Bush three weeks before the invasion. We meet here during a crucial period in the history of our nation and of the
1: civilized world. And there are hopeful signs of the desire for freedom In the Middle East. A liberated Iraq can show the power of freedom to transform that vital region by bringing hope and progress into the lives of
0: millions. But Iraqi lives and freedom matter greatly to us. President Bush proposed to liberate Iraq by overthrowing the existing regime and installing a democratic government in its place. America has made and kept this kind of commitment before
1: in the peace that followed the world war. After defeating enemies, we did not leave behind occupying armies. We left constitutions and parliaments. In societies that once bred fascism and militarism,
0: liberty found a permanent home. Notice how President Bush identifies us and them. We are the civilized world. They are the Muslim world. Our identity is purified of religious signification, while they are identified by their religion in a way that marks their lack of civilization. The Iraq War was sold politically as part of a war on terrorism, even though none of the 9-11 hijackers were Iraqi. That was made possible by the fact that many Americans racistly equated Islam with terrorism and Iraq with Islam. Some might object that Islam is not a race, but a set of ideas. However, the point is not that Islam is a race, but that secularism uses the category of religion to racialize its others and mark them as backwards, primitive, violent, and uncivilized. The U.S. did not think of itself as a Christian invader, but as a progressive and secular democracy, bringing hope and progress to the oppressed and benighted Islamic people of Iraq. Civilizing Iraq was not the only goal. Even at the time, U.S. generals and government officials frankly admitted that the war was really about getting access to Iraqi oil. The Iraq invasion was just the latest in a very long pattern of Western secular governments using religion to racialize a foreign people in a way that allowed them to narrate themselves very sincerely as the enlightened and beneficent civilizers, conveniently justifying the forcible invasion of other people's lands and extraction of their natural resources. That is the quintessential attitude of the white man's burden. Secularists claim that modernity emerged when we replaced mythos with logos, when we traded religion, magic, and mythological speculation for science and enlightened rationality. But if they're right... And how on earth did we end up with race? In our episode White Balance, we talked about how whiteness as a category was invented in colonial Virginia in response to Bacon's rebellion. Whiteness was created to keep black and white workers divided. In general, most scholars agree that all our categories of race are distinctly modern inventions. They only originated starting about 400 years ago. If modernity is all about the rise of reason and science, then why is Western life so often mapped in racialized terms that have no legitimate scientific basis? The answer is that Logos did not in fact replace Mythos. The secularist narrative about scientific progress and the triumph of reason is itself just one more myth in a long history of stories we use to map our world. And the modern construction of race is the prime example of the way Mythos, not Logos, created and continues to shape modernity. Race was constructed through a number of myths. During the same time period as the Enlightenment, white intellectuals were theorizing race in biblical terms. Some said black skin originated with a different class of creatures who preceded Adam and Eve, a group not made in the image of God. Many held that Africans were descendants of the biblical Noah's cursed son, Ham, a curse which they said justified slavery. But they didn't just use the Bible. They also used Greek myths and none more so than the myth of Prometheus. Prometheus was the trickster titan who stole fire from the gods. As punishment, he was chained to a rock and his liver was eaten by an eagle every day. In the modern period, the Prometheus myth became a potent symbol of whiteness or blackness, depending on who told the story. It was a story about a man in chains seeking freedom, a story that black writers used to narrate slave revolts and white writers used to talk about the American and French revolutions other white intellectuals identified with another version of Prometheus, an enlightened white demigod who brought the fire of reason and scientific progress to
3: wild backward humanity. That that has everything to do with the various colonial ventures, right, that are happening um, around the globe. When we, when we speak about um, secularization, what we might actually be talking about is a historically particular experience of divinization among European elites, right? That they are gaining by virtue of the mode in which they're engaging the non-Euro-Christian world.
0: The racialized use of the Prometheus myth ran so deep, in fact, that it continues with us today in a surprising way. Hickman suggests that the reason the white race was called Caucasian may be because Prometheus was supposedly chained to a rock in the Caucasus mountain range. The triumphalist narrative about modernity as a story of rational progress just glosses over the horrific and distinctly modern practice of racialized slavery. But the concurrence of these two things, racialized slavery on the one hand and secularist rational enlightenment on the other, is not a coincidence. Secularist rational enlightenment, in fact, gave us racialized slavery, and it did so through the logic of the white man's burden. The fact is that the enlightenment which was supposed to have dispelled mythos with Logos, in fact produced something which was both mythical and deeply irrational, race. But if instead of equating modernity with secularism, we think of it as a clash of cosmographies initiated in 1492, then the advent of race is not surprising at all. It is simply the result of people reimagining their cosmos in order to make sense of all these new alien people in a way that put them on top. Race was, and is, a mythological category used to make sense of the unprecedented pluralism brought on by colonial encounters. The story I've just told about the real beginning of modernity itself has all the hallmarks of a myth. It's an origin story about how our world came into being. It involves characters who view themselves as divine, and it has deep implications for how we ought to live. That's deliberate. The truth is, there's no escape from myth.
3: Yeah, whether you're a secular atheist or you're a, or 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 you're a a devout Presbyterian, by um, living and breathing and relating right and occupying space, using resources right in this sort of finite enclosure right that we have all discovered ourselves in right, you're living in a in a mythic narrative of sorts. You're, inha- you're inhabiting a mythic narrative, and so yeah. Everybody's doing this, whether they admit it or not, right? And that this is, to some extent, the yeah the, the, the medium, right, in which we're doing all these other things that we take to be distinguishable as social or political, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: This isn't necessarily a bad thing. Myths have a unique power to motivate and inspire, provide meaning and hope. Living without a strong mythos, sustained only by what we can rationally calculate, can make it hard to summon the strength required for great action. That is why those who want to see radical reforms to society need to embrace the power of myth
3: the radical transformation that is desired right is not going to be achievable without acknowledging the fact that this sort of mythmaking is happening right but more than that acknowledging the constructive role that it might <laughs> that it might perform yeah and i wouldn't want to deny at all that there are plenty of bad things <laughs> that have come and could come from that um, but the wager, I think, is that, that one might be able to, to move and to motivate different sorts of people on some level, <laughs> on, on, on some deeper level, right, that might get them to do, uh, in some cases, you know, the things that they know that they ought to do, some more that they want to do.
0: Our dangerous modern myths, myths of race and secular objectivity, were born of this new pluralistic reality. We're all still living in a radically heterogeneous world, and it's still a challenge for many people. But myths can help us deal with challenging situations, provided they're the right myths. Instead of completely abandoning myth, we should try to make better myths, be honest about the fact that we're doing it, and not try to pass off our own myths as absolute truth. We need to create not just new myths, but a new modernity. A modernity not based on racial hierarchy, but on solidarity. One that isn't just about sharing space, but building a shared future. This episode was produced by Mike Berkey. We're doing something a little different this time. We had such a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation with Jared Hickman that we actually want to share the whole thing with you. We covered many topics which we weren't able to talk about in this episode including how Black writers differed from white writers and how they used the Prometheus myth to narrate their struggle.
3: That effort to make, or that assumption, right, that Prometheus is, you know, identifiable with, you know, a Euro-American revolutionary vanguard or, or, uh, uh, of some sort, right, the presumptive racialization of the figure as white, um, is a symptom, right, of sort of felt sense of apotheosis that we've been talking about. When I see the, the Black Prometheus as, as doing, which is strikingly different, right, is coming at the gods, right, as it were, rebelling, right, um, uh, in the same way, but then eschewing the throne.
0: You can find the full interview on our website, ministryofideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is an initiative of the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, Palavi Kathamasu, and Maria McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe Ideas section for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at zachary at We'd love to hear from you. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. If you like Ministry of Ideas, you might enjoy Heat & Light, a new podcast from The Conversation US, telling stories from 1968, the year that changed America and the world. The stories are guided by the people who know them best, experts who are so personally affected by the events of that year that they've devoted their lives to studying them. Like Professor Natasha Zaretsky of Southern Illinois University, who studied the implications of a feminist protest at the 1968 Miss America pageant. Yes, This group of radical women all decided to converge on the Atlantic City boardwalk to protest the beauty pageant. in
4: the kitchen, at the typewriter, in bed.
0: Bringing together traditional conservative activists that are organized really around this idea that movements like feminism are sort of posing a mortal threat to the integrity of the family. That's Heat and Light, available wherever you get your podcasts and at heatlightpod.com. I also want to point your ears toward a recent few episodes of our fellow hub and spoke podcast, Iconography in which host Charles Gustine brilliantly navigates the past and present of our American mythos, as it finds itself in the town of Plymouth, Massachusetts. Witches, Warlocks, and Arthur Miller's The Crucible all combine for a stunning series of episodes. You can listen and learn more at hubspokeaudio.org.
4: Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.